Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And remember, while there are no commercials in these episodes, you can always support the show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade or by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Today we are rewinding back to episode 1094, Masada Yub on Lethal Force Aftermath. This was originally aired on March 21st, 2013. There's a better way to do this. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March 21st, 2013, and I got a great one for you. Uh, just about everybody that knows anything about the firearms industry has heard of Masada Yub. He's a regular contributor to Backwoods Home Magazine. He's worked with Guns Magazine, American Handgunner, Gun Week, Guns and Ammo, Combat Handguns. I mean, you name it. Um, he's a luminary in the self-defense firearms-related world, and he is just an awesome, awesome guy. He's been on shows like Personal Defense TV on the Sportsman's Channel, and he is one of the foremost legal experts, while not actually being an attorney, uh, that there is when it comes to the use of deadly force, and he's... Uh, been very instrumental in uh, a lot of uh, legal work and training of legal defense attorneys for citizens that have been called on and had no choice but to use lethal force. And he's going to be on today to talk to us about a prep that seldom is thought about. We, we get our guns. We, uh, we put them on our side. We take a course. Uh, we get our carry permits. We have them in our home. We train with them. We maintain them. We practice with them. We know when we should and when we should not shoot. We never ask ourselves, what happens if I have to shoot? Not just the mental stress of knowing you took another life, but what happens when your legal system decides maybe they don't think you did shoot legally? What happens when they come after you? What happens when they just do the basics that they're required to do? Shouldn't you have a prep for that, an after-action prep kit for the use of lethal force for every member of your family that might ever do it so that those that are not in the middle of the system can work on your behalf to get you back into your own life as quickly as possible uh, because dealing with that stressful situation is bad enough. And then with that, I'd like to say, hey, Masad, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me, Jack. Hey, I, I appreciate you being here. I was telling you off air before we got started, I, I've been reading your work and paying attention to what you've been doing for years. Uh, I've been a reader of Backwoods Home and a subscriber since 1993, so having guys like you on the air is uh, is great for me, and I really appreciate you taking your time out of what I know is a busy schedule to be here today. Well, I hate to sound like Mutual Admiration Society, but uh, I've enjoyed your podcast for some time, and my girlfriend, Gail Pepin, who produces the Pro Arms podcast, is one of your biggest fans. Well, I just, uh, you know, you told me that off air too, and I was uh, kind of surprised to hear that. It's uh, it's awesome to have you. Now, what we've got you on to talk about today, though, is being an armed citizen. And the way I put it to the audience when I was talking about this coming up is that, you know, one of the threats as armed citizens we don't think about is, you know, our own legal system. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, what do you think the biggest thing is that most armed citizens fail to plan for? <laughs> The whole aftermath itself, Jack. Uh, part of this is, you know, we're we're an entertainment-driven society, and we're shaped a lot by our culture. Uh, the different experts tell us by the time you're 21 in this country, you've seen 18,000 people get shot on TV, and you'll occasionally hear that reversed, uh, 21,000 seen by the time you're 18. And the great majority of those, good guy shoots bad guy, bad guy falls in the dust, Good guy puts pretty girl on back of saddle, rides in the sunset, and music fades out. Uh, never in a Dirty Harry movie do you see them confiscate his 44 Magnum, which is routine in any shooting scene. And never do so much as see him fill out a report. So the the fact is, the the shooting of another human being 
society accultures us to see that as good guys won, bad guys nothing. Society sees it as the death of a citizen. And it's any homicide is extremely serious, and you can expect it to be deeply investigated. You can expect your firearm to be confiscated. Uh, it's not a signal of wrongdoing. It's simply a cornerstone piece of evidence in a death investigation. Uh, you will get it back eventually, hopefully in the same condition in which it left, but the you know some of the fingerprint materials uh, tend to leave a yucky residue, and nobody at the... Uh, the Evidence Bureau was assigned to uh, check the guns every month, wipe them down, and keep them clean. Uh, that's also going to be the least of your concerns. You can you can expect in some jurisdictions to go in front of the grand jury. Uh, in some places, it's simply standard policy that any death, even the most obviously justified shooting, goes before a grand jury to review. In some jurisdictions, uh, you literally get a pat on the back from the authorities, depending on the circumstances. And the circumstances include how society treats the shooting. Uh, if you've been in a shooting in a, let's say, a small town in Alaska, and you know the, the community's reaction is, "Wow, let's give this guy the key to the city and run him for mayor in the next election," uh, you can expect minimum fallout. If some element of the community has decided that, okay, uh, in this tribal society, you from another tribe have killed someone from my tribe, then that must be punished. And the next thing you know, there's a publicity campaign, a political campaign. The prosecutor, who is typically an elected official uh, and you know keeps his nose to the wind, uh, may feel compelled to, if nothing else, do a show trial. And without mentioning any names, I'm sure some of your listeners <laughs> think of a few recent examples of that. So there is an aftermath, and anyone who's preparing to defend themselves needs to consider that as, as basically one of the third dimensions of the total reality of armed self-defense. Could you walk us through, and I know there's a huge degree of variability you just mentioned there, but in in a place where everybody does their job and does it right, and we did have a justified shooting, and I mean, it's, it's, it's at least the preponderance of the evidence seems to indicate that somebody was being robbed or raped or assaulted, and a weapon was drawn, perp was put down, the person that did the shoot did all the right things, put their weapon down, notified authorities, explained themselves, What's the next 24 to 48 hours going to be like for that person? In the scenario you've described, where it's going to be pretty clear to the the authorities uh, who's who and what's what, probably you'll stay home tonight, although if the shooting happens at home, the house itself may be a crime scene. Uh, you have... Uh, you may have large volumes of blood on the floor, which would be a hazmat situation. And it's going to time, take time to process the scene. Uh, don't be surprised if it turns out that you find yourself leaving your home and staying in a hotel or with friends that night. You can expect somewhere down the line that the family of the deceased or the deceased himself, if he survives the shooting, may bring a civil lawsuit against you. Uh, it's not an exaggeration when people say anyone can sue anyone for anything. Uh, may or may not survive its first motion for summary judgment, but as soon as you're sued, you're going to need legal representation. And that, of course, starts to, uh, to add up financially. Uh, How is that maybe different if when the police show up on scene, they at least have an in, uh, some kind of feeling, some kind of vibe that maybe... Even if you, even if it is justified, even if it's everything you said is true, if they get a feeling that maybe there's something more to it, that maybe it's not quite what they expected, or not quite what your story maybe isn't, doesn't quite line up with they, what they feel happened. Well, that would give us probable cause to believe that it might be a criminal homicide, and probable cause is grounds for arrest. And something as serious as the shooting of a human being, if I was the responding officer, and I didn't think your story passed the smell test. I would take you into custody then and there and place you under arrest. Uh, the investigation would continue, and we would gather more intelligence. 
and that intelligence would basically take us to the escalators if uh, if what we found is inculpatory evidence, evidence indicative of their guilt. We're on the up escalator. Uh, I'll talk to my boss. We will dedicate more investigative resources. We will recommend to the prosecutor's office uh, that, in the term of out of the trade, that you are good for it. And you will very likely be indicted by a grand jury or on an offer of information by the prosecutor's office without the grand jury being involved. At that point, uh, expect to defend yourself in a full-blown homicide trial. Hmm. See, now here's where I wonder where you draw the line as a citizen with trying to be smart and trying to be cooperative because in a lot of instances, I know sometimes law enforcement or former law enforcement don't like to hear this, that you're better off saying nothing. In a situation like this, it seems like you might want to have legal counsel as soon as possible. Um, but if you're in a situation where you did this, you know, justifiably, and but you're still for some reason arousing suspicion, how quickly do you draw the line and just shut up? Well, what I've come to recommend over the years is a five-point checklist of things that you, the shooter, will have to establish as soon as the police get there. Now, uh, before I get into that, let me explain where the advice "don't talk to the cops" comes from. It comes primarily from defense lawyers. I've worked with a great many defense lawyers over the over the years. I've been an expert witness, often on the defense side, since 1979. They deal primarily with guilty people. Uh, the huge percentage of their clientele, and I'm talking high 90th percentile, are either guilty as charged or guilty of some lesser included offense. So anything they say to the police will be either be an inculpatory statement that hangs them, or will be a lie that will be destroyed in court, and you know will will destroy their credibility. They get convicted anyway. And now the attorney is in the position of people wondering did he tell him to lie. And is the attorney guilty of subordination of perjury, which is a felony in and of itself, at least in my state, and can cost him his bar card? So it's not surprising that attorneys tell you, don't say anything. Having seen it from both sides, I recommend that five-point checklist. The first point would be establish the active dynamic of what happened. And by that I mean establish the reason you shot this person. This man attacked me. This man kicked down my door and came at me with an axe. This man was strangling my wife, whatever it was that, that caused you to shoot him. Second, indicate that you will sign the complaint. I, I would probably just use the phrase, officer, I will sign the complaint. This helps to confirm what you've done at the first checkpoint, which is establish who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Um, Everybody figures after they drop the hammer, they're, they're going to be the hero of the day. Uh, this particular play has no role open for hero. Uh, there is victim and there is perpetrator. The guy laying on the ground, even though he's the criminal perpetrator, is now doing a very convincing imitation of a victim. Mm. And if you don't establish who's who, that's going to get locked in stone and roll against you for the whole duration you're making me think of something here, so I just want to make sure I'm clarifying this, because what it sounds to me like you're saying is, okay, so the guy kicks down my door, grabs my wife, tries to rape her. I come home. He doesn't know I was just right behind him. I walk in the door. There he is. He's in the active, but I shoot him. Even though he's laying dead on the floor, we really are the victims here, and the crimes would be things like breaking and entering, attempted rape, assault, and we're signing a complaint basically as the victim of that crime to establish that. Is that what you're saying? That is essentially what you want to establish because okay. the dying man on the floor says, no, no, Jack thought I was sleeping with his wife, and that's why he shot me. He kicked down the door and shot me. Yeah. Well, it's his word against yours, and this whole system is geared on the assumption that whoever was harmed was the victim. Whomever harmed him was the perpetrator. And that's what we're trying to fight with those first two points of the checklist. Third, point out any evidence. Uh, just last month, I was in a murder case in West Virginia where a clear-cut self-defense shooting got turned into a murder in the first degree charge, premeditated murder charge. 
because some spent shell casings at the shooting scene uh, were moved from one position to another inadvertently by the responding emergency personnel who were trying to save the life of the man who'd been shot. This created, apparently in the prosecutor's mind, the illusion that five of the seven shots had been fired where the defendant said they were, but that two more had been fired near where he fell. And thus arose their whole theory that he had uh, walked some 40 feet and when his wounded victim fell, murderously shot him twice, twice more to finish him off. We were able to show the jury what the evidence really showed and to destroy that and win in the acquittal. But it took a dan- uh, literally a more than two-year ordeal for that man and his family to do that. So this is why we're saying point out the evidence. If you don't, the evidence can, can disappear, it can be misinterpreted, and all other kinds of bad things can happen. Evidence is very perishable. Fourth, point out witnesses. There's a whole lot of folks in this world who who don't want to be bothered. You know, the, the old New York ethos of, I don't want to get involved. And if the cops don't know to interview these people and get their stories, which will, in in the great majority of cases, will confirm the truth that you're telling, those people will disappear, and the confirmatory testimony that would have saved you will disappear with them. So I would suggest, while you're at the scene, tell the officers, look, that guy over there in the blue jeans and the red shirt was here the whole time. I think that lady in the blue dress was here. And that will... There's no downside to doing that, and you get the very strong upside that it, it may well keep you from losing critical testimony that could prove that you're telling the truth. I guess that would include if you saw someone, but you didn't know who they were, but you had a general description and they had left, is to, to mention there was a woman here uh, about five foot six, uh, blue dress. Uh, she did see what happened, but she took off. That's absolutely true. And, okay. Uh, Another thing you've got, you know, today, Jack, we're in the time of the iPhone, and whenever there's crisis, the iPhones all whip out, and, you know, we need to live our life on the assumption that we're being recorded by someone or something. Those who view those videos later need to know what to look for in there, including, in the hypothetical you and I are discussing now, the lady in the blue dress. If they don't know to look for her, if they don't know that uh, she was there at the time and not just you know, another another looker on who stopped at the scene afterwards, uh, they may not seek her out. Uh, the fifth point of the checklist, we recommend that at that point uh, you stop answering further questions and simply state, officer, you'll have my full cooperation after I've spoken with counsel. Okay. So you've established a certain level of cooperatism, but you're also saying at this point, I realize this is a serious issue, and it makes sense for me to confer with counsel. Exactly. The, uh, one of the things you've got to bear in mind is no police officer is a human tape recorder. That officer is going to be talking to many people in the course of, of the night as the investigation continues. It's real easy for them to confuse something someone else said with something you said. Okay. Uh, um, another thing is, if you are being recorded, and you you may well be, uh, any remember the the questions that are being asked by the investigator are asked as they occur to the investigator. As you answer them, once that becomes a transcribed interview, it creates the false illusion that you are telling a story that they, things happened in this order, oh. rather than you answering the questions in this order. And it can create the false impression later that you've, quote, changed your story, end quote. Wow. That's, so you have to be mindful of that. And I think your checklist assists with that because you have a process you're going through. You know when you've reached the end of that process. And that's the point you say, at this point, I need to confer with counsel. And that helps to alleviate that potential uh, from becoming a reality. Well, that's been my experience over several decades. So when we look at this, as you mentioned, it can have a lot to do with the jurisdiction you're in. If you're in a rural area of Texas and somebody breaks into your house and uh, get, they get shot and the county sheriff comes out and his team, you, you're probably spending the night at home unless there's a hazmat issue, like you said, or something like that. Um, it's, it's not but, you, but you can – A lot of folks think, you know, I live in a red state, so I'm better off than I am in a blue yeah. state. And it's it's not by any means that generic. 
Okay. The person you shot may have been the black sheep son of a very wealthy, influential family True. in the community. And even in a, uh, a rural, uh, rock-ripped Republican area, that yeah. can lead to the sort of legal vendetta that, that frankly, I've seen occur in just such areas. Or the drug-dealing son of a Dallas police chief, which did happen here. I guess my point is, in some situations, you may be spending the night not in a place you really, really don't want to be. Yeah, in other situations, determine it. The, the situation determines it. Yeah. So in other situations, even though it, you, it was a justified shoot, at least you know that the people that were with you know that you could be spending the night in jail. So what, and, and that leaves your family on the outside trying to figure out what the heck do we do now? So if you're going to be an armed citizen, this is always a potential reality. So I've always likened it to they should be she like a kit left behind for my wife, or if my wife has to use her weapon, a kit left behind for me, so that we have a plan in place for what we do next. What kind of plans do you think should be part of that kit, so to speak? Part of it be looking around now for the attorney that would be best suited to defend you in such a case. You don't need to retain an attorney beforehand. In fact, the only people who retain criminal defense lawyers beforehand tend to be professional criminals. <laughs> but it would be a real good idea to ask around. Your attorney may not do this sort of stuff, but most attorneys know who the local specialists are. Your lawyer may not do divorce law or family law, but he probably knows who's the best divorce lawyer around. Similarly, they'll have a handle on on who is the person to defend this type of case. Uh, one great source is Armed Citizens Legal Defense Network. Uh, I think it's $85 a year or so for membership. Uh, that includes all kinds of training films, monthly newsletter, and referral attorneys uh, in most jurisdictions, or at least most states now. And uh, also uh, 10 grand on the table to help you pay for that lawyer. Plus, um, their staff, uh, including expert witnesses, uh, will be dispatched to the scene uh, in a matter of days to help you out. Another thing you can do is look around, chat with friends on, on the police force, and find out who is the local attorney that the police union retains to defend police officers if they're charged with excessive uh -huh. force. That's going to be an attorney that's, that you know has experience dealing with this type of case. That's that's outstanding advice because of course they would know who the best is and they'd want them for themselves. Exactly, and more to the point, if you've done officer if you've done five or six officer involved shooting trials, the only different real difference in a criminal case between that and the private citizen is one was carrying on a badge and one was carrying on a concealed carry permit. The elements of reconstruction, the elements of justifiability, are essentially the same. Yeah, because I think a lot of people are under a mistaken assumption that a, an officer is judged differently than a citizen uh, during a shoot, and, and they're really not. They have, you know, maybe they have a little bit more leeway, and why'd you get involved in the first place, right? But when it comes down to the actual shoot, they're judged on the same criteria that, that I would be, correct? By the time it reaches a lethal force level of use of force, it's pretty much, in most respects, the same citizen or officer. Um, are there any other things that you would make sure that you had in place as yeah, an armed citizen? I would citizen? be thinking beforehand in terms of getting bond. Uh, bail and homicide cases used to run routinely at 100000 Uh Today we're seeing a whole lot more million-dollar bonds. It just, it's just become standard. This means $10,000 for 100000 gone forever to the bail bondsman. Or having property that you, your family, whoever, can put up uh, for the courts to uh, get you free so you can help to work on your own trial. How, how important is that, that the, that the person who is being accused incorrectly, we're assuming in this case, be out of prison, not just for their own sake and safety, but for the good of their trial? Well, ask yourself uh, how much you can do to uh, <clears throat> support your family and pay the bills if you're in jail. I, I haven't yet heard a good podcast come from inside the walls. 
Sure. The physician cannot uh, have his patients come to the prison to be treated. So to keep an income stream going, just to keep a roof over your family's head, you're going to have to be free during the, the months and even years it takes for this to be adjudicated. Second, nobody is going to know the facts of the case better than the person involved. Uh, it's a huge pain in the butt for the attorney to uh, arrange to visit his client at the, uh, at the jail any time a question comes up. When you're out and free, you are vastly more capable of participating effectively in your own defense. Um, one of the things that I think we think about often is as is, is people that, that are armed and, and willing to defend ourselves or our families if necessary is a classic home invasion type scenario. And I think that there is an advantage if we I, I hate to use the word whenever we're talking about taking a human life, but as the person that fired the shot, I think there's an advantage that you assaulted me in my home and I shot you there from a legal standpoint to something that happens in, let's say, a parking lot. Uh, can you talk about maybe how it's a little bit different, at least in uh, perception or level of, you know, especially when somebody's in your home and they're shot and you don't know them and they never knew you, that's one thing compared to your, your brother-in-law. Uh, but in a parking lot or a, uh, you know, I don't know, a mall, how does that, that change the dynamics? Well, the advantage that you have in your home is American law has always been predicated on the English common law. And long before the American Revolution, the English common law embraced the castle doctrine. Now, that actually, castle doctrine is actually covered under a couple of elements in our Bill of Rights. But basically, the original castle doctrine said the individual's home is their castle. Attacked there, they need not retreat. And even the king may not enter the cottage of the most humble peasant without a warrant. Now, the last element of that, obviously, would go to Fourth Amendment issues, which are not our topic today. But the understanding that home is castle. You are not expected to flee from your house. Uh, you are, there, there is what, what might be called a presumption of innocence. If you are the individual in the home and the attacker has literally breached the, the walls of the home, has forced his way through a door or window to assault you. Uh, in many states, the Castle Doctrine has been updated in the last few years to uh, even give some degree of immunity against uh, uh, criminal prosecution or civil lawsuit. Uh, Florida, for example, uh, under the uh, 776 series, uh, you are entitled to a hearing before the judge, uh, and in that hearing, if you can show to a preponderance of evidence standard, more likely than not, that you were the victim and he was the perpetrator, the judge has the power to end it there and kill the case, like putting a stake in a vampire's heart. The same state, uh, Florida, says that if you have been adjudicated to have killed this guy justifiably, that is, it's been determined uh, that you've done it, done it justifiably. Any lawsuit against you for the act should be thrown out. Now, the hmm. trick there is who makes the determination. The prosecutor simply not prosecuting is not good enough. Uh, that doesn't mean they've determined it was self-defense. It only means they've determined they didn't think they could prove you were wrong beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a damned if you do and damned if you don't. So you're only protected if they at least have a, a hearing and, and then it, rule it, it which hearing. you would really prefer not to happen in the first place because you don't want to go through it. Correct. It could be the hearing. It could be something as simple as what's called a memorandum of closure in which the prosecutor's office issues ah. a statement on letterhead that says we have investigated this and have determined it to be a justified shooting. You know, you're bringing up the Castle Doctrine there, and I think people think of it as something rather new, but as you said, it has roots in, in common law. But there are states who have come up with, I don't know if you'd call it new versions of it or enhanced versions of it. Um, given that there is a root in common law there already constitutionally, for the states that have it, how much protection does it really provide? In essence, the uh, the, re the more recent laws, the ones that passed in the few last few years, for example, in Florida or Texas, are simply a clarification of what has been there all the time, that there is such a thing as justified homicide. 
Some states have required that in the interest of preventing mutual combat, uh, going back to ancient times of gentlemen killing each other in dueling fields, for example, that if you have an opportunity to retreat, you are expected to do so. And if you do not retreat when you have the opportunity, you are seen in some degree of culpability. The states that have the retreat requirement have always made it clear, whether through statutory law, case law, or the state's recommended jury instructions, that retreat is only demanded if it can be accomplished in complete safety to oneself and others. And if you think about it, Jack, would any of your listeners ever have shot a human being to death if they could have simply walked away, if they could have simply retreated with no danger? I would like to believe not. It gets gray, though, because I've got a violent person that's armed. Um, even if it's just myself and them, the very act of retreat can make me vulnerable. Exactly. No, no one expects you to turn your back to a drawn okay. knife, and the law does not expect you to outrun a bullet. Okay. But what, what the stand your ground law, so-called stand your ground laws have done has been simply to clarify that fact to make it clearer in law, make it clearer to the public, and make it easier for the prosecutor to say, look, we've looked at this, this was a justified shooting, get over it, we're not wasting the county's money to prosecute this man for defending his family. It's important, I guess, that we understand the or others part of that as well, because let's say I'm in a parking lot. I witnessed two guys uh, clearly accosting a woman to steal from her or, or kid. I don't know what they're doing, but I know it's wrong, and I, I, I can see she's in distress. I mean, I have every opportunity in the world to retreat, um, but I'm not required to. I, I am within my rights as a citizen to go to that other citizen's defense. You are, but you've got to be careful because there's quicksand okay. there. <clears throat> it's entirely possible that the lady you're talking about is a dope dealer being arrested by two plainclothes officers mm -hmm. or two undercover narcs who just made a buy offer. And we've seen that sort of mistake uh, turn really ugly. We, we can't go on the assumption of stereotype, that the, uh, the, the violent male and the two-person violent male encounter is automatically the, aggress the criminal aggressor. Uh, that the big guy who's punching the smaller guy is automatically the aggressor. He could be the mugging victim who, unknown to you, just got the knife away from the smaller mugger a moment before you turned the corner. Sure. And is punching the guy in a frenzy of fear. So how do you, I mean, what is the, what, I mean, you... you, you in that you situation, don't... I'd recommend to you and your listeners, get some hard cover between you and the combatants, immediately call 911, and yell... I've called the police. Stop hitting that person. And what will evolve from that is pretty much going to probably help you much more clearly analyze the situation. Sure, sure. I mean, that, that makes sense. Because I've seen this makes me think of something I saw an experiment done recently, and I'm sure local law enforcement was advised to this. And because I've seen different social experiments where they usually do notify the police, but this seemed dangerous to me other than maybe they were, it looked like New York. So probably one one thousandth of a person is, is walking around armed anyway. They had two guys in an elevator and uh, the one guy was basically trying to strangle the other guy with a rope and had him on the ground and clearly in distress. Neither one was hurt, being hurt. It was a, it was a mock-up. And they wanted to see what most people would do. And I'd say 80% of the people just turned around and walked away. Uh, a couple of people tried to intervene. A couple of people called the police. But that's a situation there where a person with a weapon uh, may have drawn down and may have even fired if because they, they were doing a pretty convincing job of that. Yeah, things are not always what they appear. And the situation is very seldom going to give you a, a stark choice. Sometimes it does. You, you walk along and... You know, you see the guy beating the police officer. It's generally a reasonable assumption uh, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Sometimes if we take it's not going to be so clear. If we take the Castle Doctrine completely out of the picture, and we'd say we're just going to put that on the not the not the original, but these new versions or new enhancements, just the, the original constitutional version of it. Is it possible that a citizen would would defend themselves in one state? 
and do the citizen would do the exact same thing. The facts on the ground are exactly the same in both different states. Everybody believes the citizen, including the, the district attorney, that if the letter of the law were interpreted strictly in both states, that one citizen could be pronounced guilty and the other citizen could be pronounced innocent. Unlikely. Uh, use okay. of force law and deadly force law in particular is probably one of the most mature bodies of law that we have, Jack. Um, it, it literally goes back for centuries. Uh, it's one of the few things that, it's kind of like driving. Uh, one reason that every state accepts your driver's license in the one state it was issued is that the rules of the road are pretty much the same wherever you go. In self-defense shootings, that tends to be the same. Now, you start getting into subtleties of when can they and can't they sue in the aftermath. That may vary state by state a little bit. Um, and in terms of criminal justice, no, basically, given the same set of facts, uh, smart cops and honest prosecutors, wherever they are, are going to uh, going to come to the same decision. What you would have, of course, is you've drawn a concealed handgun on the street and shot and killed your mugger in Chicago versus Phoenix. In Phoenix, even if you don't have a permit to carry, you are legal to carry a concealed weapon. You're merely forbidden to do so if you're an adjudicated criminal, uh, adjudicated mentally incompetent, or uh, are clearly acting out of malice. In the state of Chicago, malum prohibitum versus malum in se, uh, you would be arrested at the very least for the legal possession of the gun charge. Uh, when I say malum prohibitum, uh, it's the law that says, well, you can't do it because a bunch of us got together and passed a law that said you hmm. can't do it, as opposed to malum in se, meaning, look, this thing is evil in and of itself, and it has been so as long as civilized humans have gathered. Uh, murder, for example, is malum in se. Carrying a gun in Chicago instead of Phoenix is malum prohibitum. Gotcha. On that note, if a person did have a gun on them illegally in Chicago because they just decided that I'm going to protect myself no matter what, whether that's good to do or not, we'll leave that tabled again, um, was in a shooting. It was a justified shooting that anybody that looked at it would go, there was a life at stake, this guy legitimately – save a life and and under you know under a basic understanding of the law would have been justified in, in using lethal force. But he's guilty of murder anyway because he should have never had the gun. Can that happen? You can uh, actually in the old days in New York City, uh some of the prosecutors were famous for doing that. And generally it would be plea bargain down to uh you know the the argument would be you were committing a felony carrying the gun. You killed a person while committing that felony. Ergo, it's technically felony murder. And it would generally be plea bargained down to a, a low degree of manslaughter. And eventually, when they realized, uh, you know, this is making them look foolish in the eyes of their fellow prosecutors and law enforcement officers around the country, that kind of went away. But you are still nailed for the felon in possession of the firearm charge. Uh, if the given state you're in has a law that says... Uh, shoot someone while committing a felony, 20 years mandatory, that might yet be open. That has not yet really been tested to a, to a high court level. And that's why so, people stay out of, don't carry a gun in places where it makes you a felon to do so. Okay. So if, let's say there's been a, a shooting, and it, it, let's just leave it at that. Whether it's justified or not, the, the chips will fall where they may there, but... I've just had to use my weapon in a, a lethal force uh, engagement. What is the absolute worst thing I could do at that point? The absolute worst thing it could do would be to flee the scene. Uh, a long-standing precept of law is flight equals guilt. And one of the big myths you'll see on the Internet or here around the Cracker Barrel at the general store is, well, we've heard these legal horror stories, so if, if you've had to shoot a mugger in the alley, just look both ways for witnesses, and if you don't see any, pick up your spent brass and leave and save all the hassle. And they do not realize that this will turn what would have been an absolutely justified homicide uh, into uh, pretty much a, a guaranteed indictment. Uh, it's in the same sense that if, if tonight, let's say, when you're driving home, 
some drunk, as you're coming around a curve, some drunk steps out of the bushes in front of your car faster than any human being could possibly have stopped in time, and he's killed. You dial 911, the troopers will get there, and they'll say, oh, my God, Mr. Spearco, I'm so sorry you had to go through this. Uh, we'll have to file a report, blah, blah. And that will pretty much be the end of it. If, however, you flee the scene, it's become hit and run. Uh, you will go through State versus Spirico. You can probably expect to spend a good part of the six-figure legal fee. And you can still expect to spend some prison time and be a felon for the rest of your life. The, the flight equals guilt thing goes all the way back to the Bible. Uh, Proverbs 28.1, uh, the, the wicked flee where no man pursueth, but the righteous man stands his ground as bold as a lion. It uh, doesn't mean that the law comes from the Bible. It means the law embraces human values that are so old they they go back more than 2,000 years. And even if you you did like what you said there, then you've still committed a crime. So even if it was later justified, yeah, the guy was drunk, there was nothing you could have done, or yeah, the guy was trying to kill you, there was nothing you could do other than defend yourself, there's still a crime. Even if everybody believes you, a crime has still occurred because you fled the scene. Uh, there has, and also by fleeing the scene, uh, you've invoked that element of what the courts call consciousness of guilt. Uh, it's literally presumed that if you didn't feel you'd done the wrong thing, you would not have left the scene. And that by your own lights, you must have done something wrong. The other thing we're looking at here is, unless you're a, uh, a medical examiner or at least a physician, how do you pronounce the guy dead? You just put a bullet in this guy's chest and you've walked away. And when they complete the autopsy tomorrow, they determine cause of death was exsanguination due to thoracic gunshot wound. He bled to death from a bullet wound in the chest. Doctor, how long would that have taken? Oh, probably a matter of minutes. So, doctor, are you telling this court that if emergency first aid had been summoned, the man might have survived? Oh, yes, very likely. Thank you, doctor. No further questions. Mm. And essentially, you're seen as the cold-blooded SOB who left this man to die because you didn't give a crap about him. You just wanted to keep your butt out of trouble. And that is not the sort of thing that ends up in not guilty verdicts. So with that in mind, I mean, the first thing you do after that shot is to hit 911. And, Absolutely. And, and you're calling for assistance, uh, and 911 should take care of this, but is it probably a good idea to mention send medical help as well then? Yeah, what you yeah. want to do is state, I've been attacked, a man is down, we are at such and such location, uh, we need paramedics, and we need the police. Okay. Uh, you want your weapon holstered. Okay. Uh, they will probably start asking you questions. It's not a great time to... Uh, you know, start doing an interrogation with someone who's not trained to interrogate, as most dispatchers are not. But uh, you'll want to describe yourself as the, the caller. Uh, you'll not want to be standing there with a gun in your hand when the police arrive. And as cold-blooded as this may sound, the general recommendation is do not attempt to give the man first aid. Uh, if you do, you're close enough that he can grab you and attempt to disarm you for your weapon. Uh, he is an identified danger to you and to any other bystanders, and your duty to protect them and yourself exceeds any duty you have to render him first aid. Uh, he also may be playing possum, and as you move in to help, uh, things start getting worse for you. Well, and you've now wounded him, too, so he's got even greater motive to do you harm. I mean, that, that makes sense. Well, if he didn't want to kill you before, he'll probably definitely want to kill you now. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you're holstering your weapon. Um, with that in mind and other things, okay, so now I've, I've got a guy down. I've made a phone call. Uh, I hear sirens. I know police and paramedics are both on the way. Um, I've described myself. Uh, it's likely that the first person there is going to be a police officer ahead of medical. It, it might even be planned that way. They might hang back just a half a second to let that happen because paramedics are not police officers. You know, first responders get there. How should I, what should I be doing? What, how should I greet them? I guess uh, is the only way want, I can put you're, this. You're staying on the line. The first responder may be playing clothes. Okay. Uh, if you see a scruffy-looking guy in a plain black Dodge Charger pulling up, 
and you don't know, is he the brother of the guy you shot, or might he be a cop? Tell the dispatcher there is a black Dodge Charger pulling in here. There's a guy behind the wheel with a beard and a green fatigue jacket. Is that one of your officers? Uh, and you prevented a mistaken identity shooting if that guy comes out with a gun. You also might be saving an officer's life if that is another assailant. Exactly. Not to mention your own and other people. Okay, great. Have your hands visible. Uh, have the gun, if at all possible, put away. As soon as the officers get there, uh, tell them, officers, I'm the one who called. This is the man who attacked me. He's been shot in the chest or whatever injury he has. He may still have a weapon. If there has been another assailant, and that assailant has fled, immediately describe him. Uh, that will aid in his capture, and you're not having done so. Again, is uh, if you followed the advice of don't say nothing to the cops. The cross-examination is going to sound like, let me get this straight, Mr. Spirico. You're telling this jury that you're the good guy and the man you shot was the bad guy. Yet, you didn't tell the police until the next day that there was another one of those guys, so bad, so dangerous, that you had to shoot one. And you left him out at large to prey on the public without informing the police. Uh, does that fit your profile of a good guy, Mr. Spearco? And, brother, that's where it's going to go. That's why certain things have to be established at the scene. Um, when When those officers get there... Is there anything that you should never say or never do uh, when they're arriving on the scene? Well, don't be jumping up and down yelling, I got one, I got one, I finally got one. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, you laugh, dude. Uh, I used to use that as a joke with my students back in the 1990s. Uh, we got a case of a fellow, he, he owned an auto body shop. The place was sequentially ripped off by burglars, and after about the third or fourth time, these guys were stealing him blind. He went out, he bought a 9 millimeter pistol, and put a cot in the auto body shop and figured he'd sleep there so he could scare off the next burglar. Well, sure enough, he's awakened by glass breaking, grabs his gun, gets up, and in the dark, he sees this huge guy coming at him with a weapon in each hand. It turned out he had a hammer in one hand, and I forget what he had in the other. And this poor guy just opened fire and hosed till the gun was empty. Gets on 911 and says on tape-recorded dispatch, I finally got one of those expletive deleted that have been ripping me off. Wow. So that became a very interesting prosecution. Uh, interestingly, the prosecution was, was dropped before it went to trial. Uh, there was a change in uh, in lead prosecutors. And the new prosecutor reviewing the cases that were on her desk said, okay, wait a minute, you're prosecuting this one for what? And the assistant district attorney who had the case prior said, well, yeah, listen to what he said on the tape. She's like, dude, look at the totality of the facts. It's a justifiable homicide. And she, God bless her, she threw it out. But that guy had already spent thousands on his legal defense and should have spent a great deal more before hopefully being proven not guilty. And you you look at that and you you go I can understand the person feeling that way, but I also that is a dumb ass thing to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So, how, where do we find, kind of draw the line on where things are justifiable? Um, if defensive life is is pretty clear, uh, but what about defensive property? Defensive property, uh, while one state does allow it in its statutes, it is absolutely ripe to be overturned by appellate courts, and I would not want to be the test case. Historically, American courts have held that property has a much greater value than human life, and even the, even the life of a criminal exceeds the value of what the courts call mere property. So if somebody's on the way out a window with a TV set in hand and you shoot him, that's 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 really not... <laughs> uh, pretty much you've killed him over a television set. Yeah. And you're going to have a hard time convincing 12 decent, ethical, moral people that killing him over your TV is somehow different than killing him over his TV. Either way, you kill the guy over a damn TV. 
Um, what about the appearance appearance of a weapon? I've I've seen folks they have their tactical shotgun for home defense and they've got heat shields and extended magazines and and things like that. And and my view has always been that a shotgun is a shotgun and it performs pretty much the same way. And a, a standard short barreled sporting shotgun uh, may give an overzealous defense attorney less ammunition than holding up, you know, because if, if it's got a bayonet logo on it, he's probably going to find a bayonet and stick it on there, and uh, he's going to try to make a lot of theatrics out of that. Uh, very true. Jack, I see if you've done your research, because that kind of stuff does come up. Uh, your listeners might want to do a Google search for some of the work of Dr. Glenn Meyer. Uh, Glenn spelled with two N's, Meyer, common spelling. Uh, his jury research indicates that uh, shot if given two identical scenarios where the, the ghost jury looks at one person who shot the intruder with an ordinary sporting rifle and the other who shot him with what you or I might call a modern sporting rifle, but the mainstream media calls an evil assault rifle, they tended to be much less forgiving of the latter. And it's it's not surprising for generations now uh, mainstream news media as well as entertainment media have demonized these things. Uh, we, we saw a few weeks ago a picture of Mayor Bloomberg uh, illustrating his fear of deadly assault rifles holding a Smith & Wesson 22 caliber rifle that shoots 22 long rifle rimfire cartridges. The general public does not know the difference. But particularly after the, the full court press uh, Bill O'Reilly said in January, correctly, I think, that CNN has recently become a 24-hour anti-gun telethon, that if you have used this this instrument that they, you know, the media has portrayed as the avatar of evil, that you are going to have a little bit more of an uphill fight. Now, that doesn't mean you uh, must keep straight face here that you donate your AR-15 to the Tucson Police Department, like Mark Kelly. Um it does mean that if you keep an AR-15 rifle in your home, as I do for personal protection, that you be able to articulate why you chose it. Uh, in my case, it's because the adjustable stock allows the gun to, in an instant, be configured to fit me or my girlfriend, who's 10 inches shorter with proportionally shorter arms, that its light recoil allows rapid fire on multiple assailants, and my research has shown that increasingly home invaders tend to be... Uh, larger groups than, you know, was once the case. And that uh, with modern ammunition, the 223 rifle bullet is less likely to shoot through walls and endanger, you know, neighbors or, or people elsewhere in the apartment building. If you can explain, this is the rationale, here is the proof, here is the research that I did, and here is why I made that choice, I think you'll be able to win that fight. Because the media would have us believe that the two two three assault ammo will penetrate seventy five inches of concrete. I mean, that's how they make it. Like you know, and you have you have some moron congressman on TV going, nobody needs a a two two three assault bullet to shoot a deer, and you're thinking that's because it's not a good round for deer because it's too light, you tool. But that's the mentality that we're fighting. Oh, it's absolutely true, Jack. Ironically, we're doing this interview a week after uh, Great Britain announced that they had. The Determined the 223 was impotent in stopping enemy soldiers in Afghanistan, and they're issuing 762 NATO now to SAS. Yeah, there's a whole host of rounds that we won't get into today that exist specifically because of that fact. Um, 6.5 Rendell and things like that spring to mind. Um, what about ammo selection? I mean, one thing I've always been told, just from a pure reliability standpoint, but also a legal liability standpoint, never use reloads in a weapon for self-defense. Well, uh, there may be other ammo choices that you should not make in a, a dedicated self-defense weapon. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, the two problems you have with the hand loads, I saw personally one case where the other side's argument was regular bullets were deadly enough for this defendant. He was so obsessed with horrible <laughs> mangling that. wounds that, yeah. that he had to go in his basement and make his own evil poison killer ammunition. Uh, the other thing, and I've seen that personally too, is very often, Jack, these things happen so close, there will be gunshot residue on the clothing or the body of the man you had to shoot. You are telling the truth. He came at me with a knife, and I shot him. He says, no, man, 
I was across the room, backing out the door when the crazy homeowner shot me and fired the bullet that paralyzed me for the rest of my life. That was no danger to him. Well, the gunshot residue will tell the tale. But historically, the courts have not accepted the gun owner's word for what ammunition was, exactly what load was in the gun. The prosecutor can say, well, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he literally manufactured the evidence. How do we know he didn't make his one special death bullet with its own unique characteristics that was designed to throw the detectives off the trail of the truth? And I have yet to see a case where the courts have accepted for gunshot residue testing purposes the word or the records of the, the citizen who used it. Now, that's something I didn't know, but that brings up my thing is never underestimate the stupidity of somebody on a jury. Um, I remember a case, I think it was on 2020 or Dateline or something like that. And in this case, I think the guy that was convicted was actually guilty. Uh, he claimed an accidental discharge of a 22 rifle killed another family member. And, and fine, he's guilty. And it sounded like after you heard everything, he was guilty. But one of the jurors that, that was on an interview after it, the justification in that person's mind was scary. They said when they were allowed to hold the gun and held it up and looked through the telescope, everything was so shaky and wobbly that there's no possible way that you would shoot somebody with it all shaky like that unless you intended to. And I sat there going, oh, thank God this guy's guilty because if he was convicted on that alone, I mean, I would have been up at night trying to figure out how to get the guy out of jail. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm and that's the mentality that. this guy had. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that particular case. What you generally have with juries is not stupidity, but ignorance, a lack of knowledge. Uh, during voir dire, the jury selection process, opposing counsel will do all they can to remove the Jack Spiricos, the people who know about guns, the people who know about self-defense. Uh, they want that jury to be a blank slate. Bear that in mind, and when you choose your gun and your ammunition, ask yourself, can I defend this? Can I explain this to a non-gun person when they're told the hollow-point bullets I used are evil and deadly and they're in indicators of malice? Uh, I was in a murder case last month where they made a huge deal out of the fact that the defendant used a forty-five. Oh my God, the evil is so powerful, forty-five. And it had hollow-point bullets, which rend and tear and inflict terrible wounds. And I was able to neutralize that as an expert witness very quickly. I simply said, yes, he used a nine-shot forty-five caliber pistol with hollow-point ammunition. And the police officers who arrested him and are sitting in this room are issued nine-shot forty-five calibers with hollow-point ammunition. And it's because of this, 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 and this and does not in any way indicate that these state troopers or that the defendant had any sort of malice in their hearts. And the jury agreed, and the jury ultimately found their defendant not guilty. But you're absolutely right. That is the kind of crap they will throw at you. You've got to be prepared to defend it. Now, you have, with the work you're doing now, you do classes and courses. Don't you have like an entire, I think it's like a day or two-day seminar on this very subject? We do. Uh, we encompass it in our 40-hour course, which also involves a lot of shooting. And I do a two-day, 20-hour course. It's 10-hour days, immersion course format, on what I call rules of engagement for the armed citizen. When they can, when they can't, how to explain themselves, what they need to understand beforehand, what they'll have to be able to articulate afterwards. Uh, anyone interested in that, uh, just go to MossadAUGroup.com website. Uh, that explains the classes and the locations where we give them around the country every year. And, and I'll make sure there's links to that in today's show notes. And then you're the author of like a ton of books as well, are you not? Uh, about 15. Okay. And uh, I've, I've, what I've done is I've looked up a, a link on Amazon for people where they can see all of your books, and I'll have that embedded. And then you are a regular contributor to, to one of my favorite publications out there, Backwoods Home Magazine. It's kind of a little off the subject, but I'm just interested. How did you initially end up working with those folks? Well, about 15 years ago, Dave Duffy, the publisher, gave me a call. I had not yet seen Backwoods Home, so he sent me a few copies. And basically what you had there, uh, if your listeners are familiar with the publication, it's geared towards self-sufficient living. Um, 
things like gardening, building your own cabin, and that sort of stuff. But unlike the, the Mother Jones-type publications, there's also a pretty strong libertarian bent. And Dave, from the beginning, understood that owning firearms for working purposes, sporting purposes, recreation purposes, and defense purposes were part and parcel of self-sufficiency when you live in an area so remote that you do not have immediate response of police, fire, and medical emergency resources. So we kind of hit it off. We saw things the same that way, and uh, I've been their firearms editor for 15 years now and enjoyed every minute of it. Well, and I hope you keep writing for them for a long time. I enjoy reading your columns. I also have a link in today's show notes um, to uh, uh, your archive of articles at BackwoodsHome.com, and I'd recommend that readers check it out. Um, one last question for you. i got to do it because you always ask what's the best gun when you have a gun expert on. <laughs> but let's, let's not do it as a sidearm. Let's do it home defense weapon in the home. Uh, it sounds like you lean toward the AR-15, but if you, with everything we've discussed today in mind, um, what would you recommend to the average homeowner? Actually, to the average homeowner, if they're only going to have one firearm for self-defense, believe it or not, I would recommend a handgun. Uh, the reason is when you have to answer the door at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, and it may turn out to be a police officer who's come to tell you they've recovered your stolen car that you didn't realize was stolen since you went to bed at 11 and it was stolen at midnight, and you open the door with an AR-15 in your hands, uh, things are going to go downhill real quick. Uh, the handgun, because of its portability and quick access, allows you to simply have the thing on. Uh, it sounds paranoid to people to think, you know, oh my goodness, wear my gun at home. Well, I don't know, are you paranoid because you keep your wallet on at home until you go to bed? Uh, if you have to go out unexpectedly to run an errands uh, and you forget to take your wallet, it's a mere inconvenience. If you step out to do an errand, forget to take your gun, and you're mugged by two knife wielders when you get to the 7-Eleven, it's going to be more than an inconvenience. Uh, the handgun that can always be on your person is always instantly accessible, unlike the AR-15 or the, the shotgun that might be locked up somewhere or even just in a different room out of reach. And it's also simultaneously secure from unauthorized hands. Uh, finally, the, the home defense gun, if it's a handgun in a state where it's uh, legal for you to carry if you've you know, jumped through the necessary hoops, is a gun that can always be with you when you're out in the house and the attacks occur. Absolutely great advice, and I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've been saying from the very beginning when people say, well, what do you do with your gun when you get home? And I say, nothing. And I've had even people from my audience, as, as, as libertarian and Second Amendment-minded as it is, that say, isn't that a little bit paranoid? And I'm like, actually, the most likely place I'm going to have to use my gun is probably going to be at home. And I'm not of the mind to say, I'm sorry, Mr. Intruder, could you please wait here in the living room while I go get my gun? Well, I've got to agree with you there, Jack. And I think a big part of it is simply individual habituation. Um the folks that don't routinely carry guns uh, picture this you know, heavy two-pound boat anchor that's dragging them down. They think, oh, my God, unless I was getting death threats, I'd never carry a gun at all, much less at home. Once you've had the thing on for a week, it's yeah, the example I always give people is remember when you were a little kid and you got your first wallet or your first purse. And remember what it was like the first couple of weeks you felt like this giant wallet or purse with a little child attached? And after a while, when you got used to it, it just became a normal part of you. And eventually it got to the point where you found yourself without it, you were acutely aware that something you might need was missing. And carrying a gun is exactly the same thing. Give yourself a couple of weeks to habituate to it. Let it become a part of you. And in the best of all worlds, you'll never need it. And the worst of all worlds, if you do need it, you've guaranteed that it will be there. I completely agree with that, and thanks for uh, for vetting my uh, my my contention now for four years on air that it made sense to carry it home. And thank you for being here today. And I'm going to recommend people get 
uh, by your website. Again, uh, I will have links to all of those resources in the show notes today, and I can't tell you how appreciative I am uh, that you took time with us to discuss this subject that I think most people just never really pay attention to. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. My significant other and I look forward to more of your podcast. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Masada Yub, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.